Hello, rhetorical listeners, and welcome into another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This is Season 2, Episode 2, so let's get right to it. On January 17th, just days before the third anniversary of, of President Trump's inauguration and the Women's March, um, journalist Joe Heim revealed in the Washington Post that the National Archives... NARA had purposely altered images which were a part of a a National Archives exhibit dedicated to to that women's march. The original image was taken by photographer Mario Tama for Getty Images and upon the release of Heim's article, NARA admitted to making multiple alterations to images which were a part of the exhibit. Two prominent examples uh, of the alterations featured in news stories include the, the blurring of the word Trump on a sign that read God hates Trump and then another word which refers to, to women's anatomy. And the National Archives attempted to explain their decision to alter photos and in a press release mentioned that their reasons were to not engage in current political controversy. The press release went on to acknowledge that, that young visitors would have access to the exhibit. The press release begins, we made a mistake. As the National Archives of the United States, we are and have always been completely committed to preserving our archival holdings without alteration. I talked to a few scholars working in rhetoric and composition about this phenomenon concerning NARA, and including Dr. Alexis Ramsey Tubian, who serves as the archivist and historian for the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. I mean, the most obvious example of this precedent, and it's not a great example to be pulling from, is what Stalin would do, where he would, you know, literally have his quote unquote archivists blot out, paint out, you know, his political rivals and dissidents. And so he would have them disappear from the public record. Another point that Alexis made, the idea that it can be hard to archive and research in archives, particularly when we are still very much in that same moment. And Nora's attempt to do so was, as Alexis put it, quite misguided. Uh, Archives should not sanitize history, even recent tumultuous history. And that's actually a quote from Alexis. This is an important point, perhaps the most important point, and a sentiment shared by Lee Hibbert, a PhD candidate in rhetoric and composition at Purdue University. A lot of his work intersects with his experience as a queer transgender man. Let's hear a little bit from Lee and what he has to say about the NARA controversy. My name is Lee Hibbard, and uh, I am a uh, graduate, teaching assistant, and PhD candidate. And so what was your primary interest in interest in joining the podcast to discuss this specific situation with NARA? Well, my uh, dissertation work is very focused on archival research. I've been delving a lot into the way that our archives rhetorically function, and specifically around the experiences of marginalized people, people who don't necessarily always fit the dominant cultural narratives. My research is specifically about queer history and game studies and other aspects of LGBTQ plus 
life that are sometimes left out of mainstream narratives. And so I sort of keep my ear to the ground on anything that involves major archiving decisions being made, especially on the national level. I, I suppose it's fair to say that the, the, the controversy concerning NARA is a directly connected to your own research and scholarship. It definitely is. I heard about it and I went, oh gosh. <laughs> Do you is... anticipate this is a potential site for uh, research for your dissertation? I could very easily see it coming up as a sort of little snapshot into the sort of current exigence of the research that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So while I'm, of course, not happy that it happened, I always appreciate seeing something happen and going, this is something that I can use as a very timely example in the coming years of why what I'm doing actually matters to people. How do you see this specific controversy as a site to do work? I think that especially in a a pedagogical context, I see it being very valuable. A lot of times in the classroom, when we're talking about the way that media rhetorically operates, we want to use timely examples to demonstrate to our students, some of whom may not be as tied into the political landscape or may have very different views of the political landscape, and it can benefit them heavily to have timely examples of what is going on in the world that may be causing people some concern, or if you want to avoid a you know, controversy in the classroom itself, you can at least present it in a way that says, here is something major that happened, and here is how it was handled rhetorically, and then talk about what people see in that situation. I think it's a really interesting, timely object example, and those can be really useful teaching tools. I agree with you 100%. I was texting with a friend who's a Trump supporter, but I I was talking to him specifically about this issue, and I said, this is nonpartisan. Like, this is (laughs) not a partisan issue. This is very much not just a political issue. It's a cultural issue. We are looking at major institutions that are part of the cultural foundation of the United States of America. The, The National Archive is supposed to be impartial. It is supposed to be a record of things. They are supposed to track the history. And I think that for this to be so blatant is sort of, I don't even know how to best describe it. I think that while a lot of archiving is not necessarily completely apolitical or completely nonpartisan, it's very sort of mask off about the fact that archiving does involve political and human choice. Right. And that's something that a lot of people aren't very comfortable with, because even if we know that, it has to be handled in a very particular way so we can understand that the people who are involved in the archiving process aren't bringing their biases in in a certain way that is resulting in damage to the historical narrative. So then with this controversy, which, as you mentioned, like shakes at the foundation of one of our major institutions, what are the implications in your site? What are the implications for work in rhetoric, like visual rhetoric or archival studies of this controversy? I think that for me, especially, the implications are very troubling, especially for the way that this administration has historically handled people of marginalized identities, the way that they have handled those particular scenarios. I think that it is a very concerning instance of what potentially is to come if these kinds of things are not observed and rectified and called out. I think that in some ways it is a very useful object lesson to bring to light the way that archives function. A lot of the research that I've done involves uh, scholars like uh, Trio, who talks about all of these different aspects of archives, including 
the facts of making narratives. And even though, especially the statements that be, were made by the folks at NARA, they said that we're a nonpartisan, nonpolitical federal agency. The fact that they made any adjustment means that they are contributing to a different narrative. The implications here are, and I don't like to be a catastrophizer, but this is also tied to my research. I've done a lot of research into the uh, years leading up to the Third Reich, and there was a lot of censorship, a lot of book burning, a lot of violence against people who were making massive headways, especially in research on human sexuality. Uh, the, The Hirschfeld Institute was one of the first places that was raided in 1933, and all of the research that was burned there set back research on human sexuality and gender probably decades like the amount of damage was catastrophic and even if it is not a one-for-one comparison the fact that i can look at these two situations and seek comparisons means that the implications of an institution tied to our government making these kinds of adjustments is is troubling what do you think it says about our current cultural moment that this controversy has erupted surrounding a march made up of a marginalized community (laughs) I think that it exemplifies in a lot of ways exactly how all of this shakes out. It's the sort of thing where regardless of whether or not you are trying to be apolitical, you are making a political statement by looking at a marginalized group and saying, this is not something that we want people to see, especially when the argument that Nara made was, this is a poster on the outside of the exhibit that will be seen by like, children. The implication being that the experiences of these marginalized people, of women, of people who do not agree with the president's operations are a problem. They are something that needs to be removed, that we need to sanitize. They are not suitable for children. And that's very troubling. You covered the the main highlights, I think, to the NARA response, the press release about the young visitors visiting, and then also that they wanted to be apolitical. Do you buy that response? I think the biggest part of their response that stuck out to me, and I was uh, talking to a a friend of mine who's a a scholar in uh, Pittsburgh about this, the first part of their like official tweet Mm -hmm. that they made said, we made a mistake. Right. And I think that that word choice is very damning, in my opinion, because mistake implies that it wasn't a conscious decision, that there wasn't a process that people went through to make this decision, to blur these things out. Like, oops, my finger slipped and now this isn't here. No. Mm. Mistake implies that it was an accident. You didn't do it on purpose, that it was a little slip up. This is far more than a mistake. So I think then in in looking specifically at that that first sentence, right, we made a mistake, four little words. There's a lot to unpack there. I think you bring up some... (laughs) Some really great points. It's not just oversight. There was a conscious hand in this. It wasn't an error. I did a little digging after all of this was released because as I've been doing archival research, I've done a lot of reading up on the codes of ethics, the Society of American Archivists work, and they issued a statement a couple of days ago specifically about the incident. And what's interesting about the statement is how specifically they denounce the actions of NARA. They are very clear that they are not in support of what NARA did and that it violates their code of ethics. And I think that it's really interesting to see just how willing they were to say, 
this is wrong and we don't just want you to apologize. And it's like a SAA encourages completion of the policy and procedure review as soon as possible as a signal of NARA's ongoing commitment to defending accuracy and respect for historical documentation. They don't just want an apology. They want NARA to fix it. They want NARA to actually pull through with their, we're going to review our policies. So I think that it's very important to be aware that while NARA itself is kind of lukewarm on the subject, the institutions they are also associated with, Society of American Archivists, are very clear that they do not support this behavior. I will ask, <laughs> what, what do you think that NARA will do? Uh, honestly, I'm not sure. I've always been more of a realist than an optimist. I want to believe that they will make the effort to actually review their exhibit policies. I want to hope that they will see the damning implications of this, but I'm also not sure where we're headed in terms of the political landscape. And I think that a lot of their response is going to depend heavily on how the next election shakes out. When I put out the call to have people talk about the NARA controversy on the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I had a few people reach out. Along with Alexis and Lee was Caitlin Lusher, a graduate student at the University of Cincinnati. Caitlin's work is focused on archival practices, and as a result, she brings a unique perspective that's different from my perspective and different from Lee's perspective and anyone's perspective. Her work specifically with the Street Vibes magazine is quite compelling. Let's take a listen to what Caitlin has to say about the NARA controversy. Uh, my name is Caitlin Lusher, and I am a PhD student, hopefully soon to be PhD candidate at University of Cincinnati. What was your primary interest in joining the podcast to discuss this situation? You know, just the, just the fact that the National Archives have so much sway over how we remember things in this country. And there's been so much scholarship about that, about, um, you know, the politics of archives, how they influence memory making. And um, I, I actually pulled out some of the articles that I read for my exam list um, and for the RSA Summer Institute about this. So, it, and, it, and you know, some of these are archival studies journals. So you would think, you would think that the archivists at the National Archives would be aware of this scholarship. But I'm like, how can you be so blithely unaware you know, I read about, like, what was blurred out. Um, there was a lot of, like, uh, anything that was any politically charged messages against Trump. Right. Uh, anything that said vagina or pussy was taken out. And I thought, how completely ludicrous. You know, because you can't just erase, you know, people's political opinions from history. You know, I, I mean, some... No, many people try to bury that stuff. Like, for example, people don't know, like, a lot of people don't know, like, how much, like, political dissent there was against Lincoln, for example, because he's okay. lauded as, like, you know, this brilliant president that was, like, one of the best. But there were people who were against him, you know, and, and but that is stored in history, stored in the archives, despite, you know, popular opinion. So it's interesting, you know, the current president has... Just like he almost seems to scare people into, you know, doing these things. And I'm not saying that's what what was going on, but it. I just found it 
really interesting because, you know, like I said, some of the scholarship has been talking about this for a long time. Like, um, I have this article here that I pulled out from my folder called Making of Memory, the Politics of Archives, Libraries, and Museums in the Construction of National Consciousness by Richard Harvey Brown and Beth Davis Brown. This is from 1998, a long time ago. And they're talking about how, you know, how, how this, you know, the, the storage of knowledge is power. Archives started uh, in the French Revolution so that people would know the history of other people and would be in, could be informed mm-hmm. um, because people just didn't know these things. So, yeah, like, what does that say about what they could deem important, you right. know, and and like and like they 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 say they took out like vagina and pussy because it was inappropriate. I'm like, uh, that's a oh man, I could go on a whole feminist rant about that. <laughs> but just the main thing I think is just you can't blur out what what actually happened. It happened, and you have to record it accurately. You bring up a couple of themes that haven't necessarily been touched on in, in the conversations I've been having, and that's awareness and memory. Specifically, you were referring to the awareness of the archivists that worked at NARA. And like, why are they not aware of this scholarship that's 20 years old? Where is the gap there? Well, yeah, that's that's interesting to think about because, um, you know, it's it's very likely that some of this scholarship might be kind of like outside their scope. Uh, like, for sure. example, I don't I don't expect any of those archivists to necessarily know the kind of things that are like Red Comp scholars are talking about, for example. Sure. Sure. But when there is an article from a journal called Archival Studies, and it was published, you know, within the last 10 years. So, like, this one I have here, Whose Memories, who Ar- Whose Archives, Independent Community Archives, Autonomy in the Mainstream. It's by Andrew Flynn, Mary Stevens, and Elizabeth Shepard. This is from a journal called Archival Studies, and it is from 2009. Okay. It wasn't that long ago. I just think that if you're in a field... You should know what kind of conversations are happening. Like, what, sure. you know, you have to know what's going on. I mean, you can't, you can't, like, for example, you could, you can't, ex- you shouldn't, like, just be okay and let it slide, you know, if a politician doesn't know politics or, <laughs> you know, if a lawyer doesn't know law or a doctor doesn't know medicine. An archive, you know, an archivist should know, you know, the archives, like, why it's important and what they're doing with it. Like, how might visual rhetoricians take up this site and do research? How would uh, rhetoricians interested in archival studies do work at this site? I think, well, I mean, for one thing, taking care to record and document things that may stand outside the norm and may easily get covered up. Sure. Uh, community archivists are very valuable. Uh, while they may not have the same training as like a you know professional archivist, as we are seeing here, uh, they are going to you know you know make their own contributions and kind of create their own archives and maybe preserve these things before it's too late. There can be a lot of rhetorical work done in those spaces, and that's in in a way that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Street Vibes is try to preserve it before it's too late before it disappears i I guess the thing that keeps that that i keep thinking of is capture what you're seeing before it gets covered up by the powers that be what you're alluding to are feminist archival practices exactly 
what does it say about our current moment that this controversy surrounds a march composed primarily of mar- of a marginalized community? I mean, I, <laughs> I think it says a lot about um, who's really calling the shots in these kind of places. Like, I, I, I personally, I want to know, and I'm not sure. It seemed like there were a lot of male voices in my, I mean, maybe I'll have to check this again. But it seemed to me like there were a lot of male voices defending the blurring. And I'm like, wow, that's convenient. Like I said, I'll have to check again. You know, it's then, you know, time and time again, leadership in large organizations like this, especially government organizations, are headed by old white guys. And, uh, you know, and there's a long, long history of women being silenced in history in the archives you know there's a reason why people like uh, Susan Cates and uh, Jacqueline Jones Royster and Shirley Logan all you know did work uncovering these voices that had been silenced it's not like they didn't exist they just weren't considered important enough to be in the archives you know and the fact that 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 this you know dissent that is considered to be controversial is coming from women like that's that just gives people more reason to want to cover it up, right? Because what right. we, we want to think that we've come so far as women, we're still being silenced all the time, um, in multiple ways and in uh, multiple venues. And For so, sure. why would the archives be any different? What are your What is your response to the National Archives press release? Yeah, I read that release, and the first thing I thought <laughs> is, "You have never been apolitical." <laughs> Archives are inherently political. You can't have an apolitical archive. History is not apolitical. Memory is not apolitical. Like, come on now. If archivists were robots, maybe it could be a completely, like, rational, objective, like, I don't know. You know, the like like I was saying earlier, the very fact that you choose, pick and choose what you preserve and what you um, consider important is very much a political act. Right. You know, like for a long, long time, you know, it didn't seem like women's voices were heard or then didn't seem like there were women writers or rhetoricians. And all of a sudden, poof, wow, holy crap, they're there the whole time. Uh, that's that's very much a political act. Silencing people based on gender, sexual orientation, race, or ethnicity, anything like that. That is that is a political act, and it's been done a million times over. Today. <laughs> yeah, today. Right, right. For one thing, it's it's always interesting that anything about women's anatomy, you know, just immediately needs to be censored. But people will say like make dick jokes and and like you know the, the if you say vagina or anything you know adjacent to the word vagina, they're like oh oh my gosh. Our archives preserve memory. They are political. They um, they have a lot of power. I think it's a very grave mistake to underestimate that power and to just just you know just not even hide the fact that you are clearly trying to silence people's political opinions or um, to blur out like anything involving a woman woman's body. It's it's just. It makes me question, like, what year is it? You know, what what kind of regime are we living in here? There is something very, very wrong when history is being tampered with. 
I don't care what the reason is. There is something very, very wrong about that. It makes me think there's someone who wants a very specific vision of history that is not going to be accurate and is going to portray certain people in a better or worse light. That's going to, that's going to really change how uh, the country moves forward. You know, it, it's just like, you know, it, if they've altered this, what else have they altered? You, 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 I mean, you know, it's like they got caught in the act this time, but... What other things have they altered? Like, how else have they messed with the public memory? That's what I want to know. Alexis Ramsey Tobian is Associate Professor of Rhetoric at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. She is the co-editor of the collection Working in the Archives, Practical Research Methods for Rhetoric and Composition, and co-author of In, Through, and About the Archive, what digitization disallows from the collection Rhetoric and the Digital Humanities. She serves as archivist and historian for the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. I was able to catch up with Alexis and talk to her about the NARA controversy last week. The insight that she shared and the knowledge made during our chat will perhaps be a compelling sight for rhetoric and composition scholars who are interested in doing work with the NARA controversy. Hi, my name is Dr. Alexis E. Ramsey Tobian. I am an associate professor of rhetoric at Eckerd College, a small liberal arts college in St. Petersburg, Florida. Excellent. So I know that we connected via Twitter. Right. Uh, I wonder, what was your primary interest in joining the podcast to discuss this situation with the National Archives? Well, my primary area of interest and of research is archives. Um, That's what I have published on. And so when this situation came across my newsfeed, I, like so many others, was horrified that an image at our National Archives, at NARA, would be manipulated in this way. And so my, you know, when I saw the call or when um, Pam kind of tagged me in your call, it just, it, it really spoke to me because I'm always interested in questions of, of access and who and what gets saved and how it gets saved and then how we're able to then get in contact with that material. So it just, it was kind of all in my wheelhouse. You mentioned that your work is in archives and archival studies. So could you maybe explain uh, how exactly this might connect to your own research and scholarship? I, my, my first major publication was part of the edited collection that I'm one of the editors for working in the archives. And in that collection, I talk about this concept of of hidden collections, the collections that exist at archives, but that aren't available for research because they're not processed, because they're off-site. And so, I've, like I was mentioning, this, this question of access and of the digital preservation of materials has always really been at the forefront. And um, I'm also the archivist for the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. I have been interested in the work, and one of the things that I was doing with the coalition was 
was thinking about how we document and then how we archive moments of protest and dissent, which I see connecting with these questions of access and, you know, the questions of what gets saved Mm -hmm. and how do we save, you know, these very non-traditional types of documents. So for me, it all, all really connects together. It makes me think about precedent and this situation (laughs) specifically. For people who aren't specifically attuned to archival studies or or even rhetoric and visual rhetoric in this way, where is there precedent, perhaps, in our in our nation's history or in in other histories? I mean, the most obvious example of this precedent, and it's not a great example to be pulling from, is what Stalin would do, uh, where he would, you know, literally have his quote unquote archivists blot out, paint out you know, his political rivals and dissidents. And so he would have them disappear from the public record. You know, literally their images were no longer there in the photographs. And so, I mean, that is the kind of terrible tradition that we're, that we're pulling from. And you, and you see a lot of people bringing this up. It was very much a Stalinist move to alter these kinds of, of records in this way. First, Scholars in rhetoric and composition or archival studies and all the sub-disciplines and, and, and interconnecting, and I'm sorry, and interdisciplinary studies. How might we do work at this site? How might we do work at NARA? At NARA, specifically focusing on this phenomenon of them, you know, altering an image in our specific, in our current moment. What I was thinking about is maybe looking at other archives that have said, we want to get the collections and hold the collections of protest. So the Newberry Library, for instance, over in Chicago, is known for their collection related to dissent and protest. You know, when the Women's March was happening, the the first one in 2017, they put out a call in advance and said, when you're done marching, drop your signs off and your hats and at whatever else at our doorstep we wanted. And so I think it would be interesting to look at perhaps how NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, how they have processed the Women's March or other moments of dissent versus other institutions that have made it clear we want this kind of material and who are actively thinking through questions of how do we preserve, you know, protest signs. You know, the the former curator at the Newberry Library, Martha Briggs, kind of joked and she said, you know, now we're trying to figure out how do we preserve marabou feathers, <laughs> you know, beyond just paper. And so I think that's one thing that you could do is a comparative study of how different archives and of different kinds of archives have decided to represent moments where that made people uncomfortable. You know, the the, the Women's March, obviously, but, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and, um, you know, some of the climate change protests that we've been having. So that that would might be one um, area of study that I would recommend. The, the sites that you're mentioning, mentioning are, are making me think specifically about how feminist archival practices would be would be used uh, in this work. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's lots of work, books coming out in, my, in, in articles that are doing this feminist archival research. Well, one book I'm kind of looking at 
that's starting to help us think through these is Jackie Joins Royster, Royster and Geisha Curse's Feminist Rhetorical Practices, sure. um, you know, which is, you know, really a seminal, has become a seminal text in feminist studies and their idea of the, the critical imagination and thinking about, and I think this is one thing that feminist studies can help us with, is thinking about what is not there in the records, what didn't get saved, what's not been processed. And, you know, when you have these images of the protest where Trump and, um, you know, references to the female body have been removed, that, that question of why are we creating this absence, why are we creating this hole in the documentation, really comes to the forefront. The National Archive mentioned that their reasoning was to protect young visitors to the exhibit. Um, I wonder, what do, what do you think about the National Archive's response that moment and the, and the response as a whole? And what are the implications for NORA specifically and, and, and other archives going forward? Well, I mean, I have to say, I have to give them credit okay. that they did come out and say, we made a mistake. Right. You know, I do appreciate that they said, you're right, we messed up. You have to give them credit for that. Sure. But I do agree with, you know, like the call that's coming from the ACLU saying, yes, thank you, but that's not enough. Like, you still need to own up to this choice you made. And you know, to the precedent that you're setting at the national level, that it's okay to doctor images that are critical of people, you know, and, you know, part of when they were, um, when the news story, you know, first broke, you know, Joe Heim, one of the, I think it was in his article, um, talking about, you know, that they also wanted to make this display nonpartisan, mm-hmm. yet, you know, they, they blot, blur, blotted out, Trump's name, which made right, it right. very partisan, in fact. And then the claim that, you know, they were trying to protect young children. I mean, I'm a mother. I can appreciate that to a certain degree. But I think it almost made it more obvious to have these blurred moments in the photograph than it would have just to leave them in and, and make it, you know, this this image of dissent, and so they, they actually kind of called attention to the missing words. And so now they have a sign that instead of saying God hates Trump, it just said God hates. Yeah. For me, that's a little bit more problematic than, you know, having the word vagina on a sign. That's a part of anatomy. That's not a, a bad word. I think their response, like I said, I give them some credit, but still a little weak. Right. I hadn't really thought about the removal of the word Trump, what's left and what that means. I really hadn't thought about that. Images, it's an image at the entrance to a display on the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which is all about giving women vote, a vote and a voice. And so the image at the beginning of this exhibit, you have chosen to silence certain women's voices. So how is that framing the display, you know, and why are you saying, okay, certain women get to talk, certain signs get to be viewed, but the other ones are too unfeminine, are too controversial and too graphic. And so it's, it's this terrible moment of irony at this, in this exhibit celebrating women's voice, you are immediately introducing people to the idea, to the idea, well, only certain voices 
get to be said or get to be heard. Only certain ideas get to be advanced. And so for me, again, that's a lot more problematic than the word vagina in a sign. And I, the other point that I would make, too, is that um, one of the things that that rhetoric and composition scholars have really been talking about for, you know, the last 10, 15 years is, you know, archives, archives are very rhetorical. You know, the choices that we make about how to save, what to save, even what we choose to research when we go in there and then how we choose to frame our research. And so this is a moment when the archive made this really wrong rhetorical choice. And I, and I think that needs to be acknowledged as well. All right, that about does it for me this week at the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us. That's Dr. Alexis Ramsey-Tobian, Lee Hibbard, and Caitlin Lusher. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another new episode, so make sure you carve out some time on Monday or Tuesday to give us a listen. You can find the Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We're hosted on Anchor. So you might find us there, or you can get us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Radio Public, and a few other places as well. The National Archives has some work to do, and I look forward to seeing what they do, and also perhaps this is a a controversy, a, a situation that we'll need to revisit later on in the podcast. Make sure to reach out to us if you want to join the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Ret. Reach out to us via Gmail, TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to collaborate with you, and we look forward to doing so. All right. Until next time, be kind to one another, and always be listening rhetorically. Would you like to join Charles on the podcast? The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, is a unique series of podcast episodes specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Moreover, Our Emerging Scholar series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication 
by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to the community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, if you would like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, or if you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Rep. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon.